Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column here, here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular plunge into the deep end of Brexit. Lots to talk about this week. Britain has a new Home Secretary or Interior Minister, if you're of a continental bent, after the once highly regarded and distinctly pro-European Amber Rudd resigned. Technically because of her failure to tell the truth to Parliament, but mainly because of a massive scandal over immigration, which was, of course, itself a very important factor in the Brexit referendum. So we'll be taking a look at what that might mean, if anything, for the talks. Then, as we record this, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, is on the island of Ireland, where the problem of the border between North and South remains the most significant obstacle to the successful completion of a withdrawal agreement. He warned the whole process was at risk unless Britain softened its red lines and came up with some fresh thinking on the question of the customs union. Which, of course, the Cabinet's key inner Brexit subcommittee is due to discuss this week in what's being billed as a crunch meeting. Although, of course, we've had a few of those before. And finally, the government has suffered yet another heavy defeat in the Lords, but this time on an amendment to the withdrawal bill that could actually end up proving very significant indeed. At least, both the most hardcore leavers and the most strident Remainers seem to think so. In essence, it could pave the way for Parliament to send ministers back to Brussels to renegotiate if MPs vote down the withdrawal deal in the autumn. So we'll be asking, is this as big a deal as it looks? Spoiler alert, Dan thinks it might not be. Anyway, with me to discuss all this are our Brexit means regulars, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts and Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to both of you. Hello. 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 Hello Hello from Brussels. Hi. Um, Let us start then with that cabinet reshuffle, shall we, Dan, and its potential impact on Brexit. Now, on paper, 
Theresa May has maintained the balance on that sort of core 11-member Brexit subcommittee, hasn't she? She got five pro, five anti, and herself with the casting vote. But, you know, that's not the whole story, because although he did vote Remain, Javid is a much less enthusiastic cheerleader for the EU than Rudd. On the other hand, he doesn't yet at least wield quite the same clout as as she had in the cabinet. And then, of course, we have to consider how much of a hardliner he might be on immigration. That Might there be room for some sort of leeway on, uh, on freedom of movement under him as opposed to his predecessor? And then, of course, the, the big question, I guess, is what role is Amber Rudd now going to play on the backbenches? And is she going to join the sort of Tory uh, anti-Brexit rebels in the Commons? So what's your assessment of the overall impact of this of this move, this reshuffle on the Brexit process? Well, I think... Um, once again, the UK is showing just how sort of um, uh, myopic, parochial, solipsistic, <laughs> pick your adjective, but uh, it, it really is over Brexit by obsessing about what it means for the cabinet, as if as if that really counts very much, um, given that we are engaged in a negotiation process with some other people. We have these interminable um, negotiations with ourselves, and, and, and this latest reshuffle has been analysed um, in the rest of the press almost exclusively through through the lens of, of well, which which side might be up within the cabinet as to which mm. of the customs union options we want to happen, um, as if it doesn't, as if that just makes it happen, as <laughs> if as if we get to pick one and then the rest of Europe rolls over and then and lo and behold we have it. So I, I have to take a bit of a pinch of salt about the the sort of mechanics of tomorrow's. Uh, Brexit War Cabinet, to give it its mm. kind of really scary Fleet Street name. Um, because at the end of the day, as Marie reminded us, neither of the two options that the War Cabinet is discussing uh, are seen as credible by the other side. And mm. until one of them is, then mm. we don't get anywhere. Mm. I think the most important thing about um, the whole Amber Rudd affair is actually to go back to, as you pointed out, the reason why she left, the fantastic reporting done by our mm. colleague mean a gentleman over the Windrush scandal and what that says about government immigration policy that's what I think is the lasting Brexit legacy of this um, the government has basically uh, in its back pocket we know through another um, leak to the Guardian some while back a very draconian immigration plan after Brexit the draft document we saw um, really involved pulling up the drawbridge and behaving very badly to those already here. And I think that in the wake of what the Windrush scandal has shown us about the country's tolerance for what is a pretty you know, racist immigration sort of mistreatment of yeah. um, I don't think that flies now in Brexit. I just don't see how they can follow through with that the original immigration plan as drafted. So regardless of the change of personnel, this all has the stamp of the Prime Minister on it. And I think they've had a really sharp rude awakening about the country's tolerance for racism. That's a, that's a very interesting thing. And, and what about I mean, just finally, um, the, the possibility of, of Amber Rudd joining the ranks of the kind of Ken Clark's Anna Subra's? Uh, yes, the, I think that that's that's also that that's also to to be weighed up against the imbalance perhaps around the cabinet table uh, in favour of the hard Brexiteers. I personally think that more important than cabinet right now is parliament mm. and as we're going to go on to discuss there's quite a big um, showdown brewing there, a number of votes coming to the Commons and uh, Amber Rudd joins the bank benches where we know there are a number of former ministers, Justine Greening is another, mm. Damien Green is another, who are deeply uncomfortable about the direction of Brexit policy 
democracy and now are much more permissioned to vote. Now, they still have to defy a whip, and I'm not sure that Amber Rudd's going to be rushing out to defy a whip quite so quickly. But in the long run, these are potential rebels to join an already quite sizable bunch of backbenchers who could uh, vote against the government. Interesting. Jennifer, any particular take on this from Brussels? I mean, is it just sort of a, a, a shuffling of the of the deck chairs on the Titanic um, as far as Brussels is concerned? I mean, I see, I see Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's point man on Brexit, obviously, who, you know, lost no time at all in writing to the new Home Secretary, a, you know, a long kind of welcoming letter listing all the various problems uh, still to be resolved on the rights of, of EU citizens. And of course, of, as Dan mentioned that whole scandal, the Windrush scandal that ultimately led to to Rudd's resignation hasn't gone unnoticed in Brussels, has it? Yes, exactly. And and so Guy Verhofstadt, as you say, wrote this this long welcome letter, which really was a sort of politician's welcome letter by pointing out all the the problems and, and shortcomings that that he sees in the the UK's way of dealing with EU citizens after Brexit. And I I think for for the EU side, what the Windrush scandal has really brought home is that the the risk of EU citizens sort of falling into the same um, treatment a few years down the line is a real risk that that has to be prepared for by very meticulously ensuring that this this settled status can be uh, arranged for EU citizens, that the application process is smooth, that that people will be treated sort of fairly and and respectfully as, as, as human beings and not through this, not have to go through this awful bureaucratic machine. And I think a lesson that the EU side have really drawn from uh, from the Windrush scandal, another one, is that the UK Home Office just doesn't look ready to implement any kind of post-Brexit immigration plan, and there are still sort of big doubts about that. So, And we, we saw those doubts reflected in that letter by Guy Verhofstadt on behalf of other MEPs, and it's worth a reminder that this letter came on the back of a meeting between Verhofstadt and, and Home Office officials last week, and he was very polite about those Home Office officials and about that meeting and he said it was very positive but it's clear that they still have a number of concerns and just to to summarise those briefly they really sort of centre on problems for for vulnerable groups, people who might not be very internet savvy and might not have the technology to, to be able to complete the form online. And then the other big issue for them is cost, that they really object to the fact that uh, individual EU citizens should be obliged to pay for the settled status when it's all a result of the UK's decision to, to leave. So they're still pressing very strongly for that the whole process to be free. And it's also worth pointing out that that letter came with a warning that uh, if there are no effective solutions or what the European Parliament deem effective solutions, then they could withhold their consent on the Brexit deal. And that's a, that's a, a card that the, the MEPs will continue to play because they, they, they do have a, that final say, yes or no, on, on the Brexit deal. So I think they'll continue to push the Home Office very hard on this. Hmm. And any kind of any perceptions of, of the new Home Secretary in Brussels at all? Any any sort of expectations of a of a different approach? Not really. I think he, he's for, for Brussels. He's a he's an unknown quantity, having been more recently in the community's brief, where there isn't really very little sort of EU interaction with the EU institutions. I think. To really to sort of reinforce Dan's point, people are not seeing this so much from the point of view of what it means for the cabinet, because as far as the EU is concerned, they already have the EU's own view very clearly on what it is possible for the UK to achieve on Brexit. So they don't really see sort of a change of, of one Remainer for a slightly different uh, Remainer mm-hmm. is, is adding up to much that's going to be 
substantial in this. In the big picture, doesn't make much difference. Okay, uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Uh, Mr. Barnier in Ireland and the never-ending saga of the or a customs union or customs partnership or streamlined customs arrangement or whatever. And what with <laughs> um, Jennifer? Let's stick with you if I, we can just for a minute. I mean, Barnier sounded pretty forthright, didn't he, this week? Um, as did, of course, the Irish Tisach. The talks could fail altogether unless Britain shifts its red lines. Basically, what they're saying, you know, there is some fresh thinking. There needs to be uh, some urgently some fresh thinking on this question of, of the customs union and uh, and the Irish border. How worried are Brussels and the EU twenty seven really about the lack of progress on this on this question now? I, I think they are worried because the lack of progress really goes back. At- a long way because although in in it feels like again in recent weeks that everyone has sort of rediscovered the british ideas of the the, the special customs partnership or the the maximum facilitation and we're having lots of very earnest discussions about what these what these mean and who would accept them in the cabinet and who wouldn't but in fact if we if we go all the way back to last august that was when the eu side or the commission set out very clearly that they thought these ideas were unacceptable were not going to work they they said the uk vision for a customs partnership was was pure magical thinking and when it comes to technology to solve the Irish border issue they've they've said time and time again that you're going to need more than just a, a special um, sticker on your on your windscreen and a few um, and a few exemptions for for small traders so we've heard this many times but I think what we are seeing in the in the last few days and weeks is a is a sort of sharpening of the rhetoric a greater sense of urgency not only from Michel Barnier, who said yesterday that he wanted to see substantive progress by June, but we also had a very similar message from Donald Tusk last week, and he will be chairing that meeting of, the, of EU leaders in, in June where they will assess progress, you know, whether, whether the talks uh, are moving forward or, or not. And, and I think this increasing urgency actually shows the success of Irish diplomacy in this regard, because Ireland from the beginning have been saying that they want this settled as soon as possible, that they they don't want it to be delayed until the autumn when we're into the the days of agreeing the final deal, that they really want this done sooner rather than later. And I think the fact now that that message is beginning to be also given out by by EU figures as well shows how how successfully the Irish have, have played this. And also that the EU side want to show that if you're a member state, you're treated as a member state and your vital interests are going to be protected, whereas the UK, as, as a country that's leaving that, that block, no longer has those vital interests that need to be defended. So I think there's a, there's a real political process at work here. Absolutely, and, and a sure sign, of course, that Irish diplomacy is, is working when um, the British start insulting them. Um, Dan, the, as you mentioned this uh, briefly um, earlier, the Brexit inner cabinet, war cabinet, to subcommittee, whatever you want to call it, including, of course, Sajib Javid for the first time, is meeting this week, supposedly to decide this whole customs union question once and for all. We are highly doubtful that it will, of course, but leave that to the side for the for the time being. Um, let, let's just sum up, because it is a hugely complicated and technical question, the whole thing, isn't it? We basically, as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, we basically have two British 
proposals on the table here. One is a kind of a big, new, all-encompassing free trade agreement and all-singing, all-dancing customs deal with the EU that would effectively avoid tariffs and goods checks and all the rest. And the other is the, the technology option of number plate recognition and vignettes and cameras and trusted trader schemes and all that kind of stuff to sort of supposedly minimise uh, the need for those checks. But the basic problem, the root of the problem really, is that essentially that the EU doesn't think that either of those proposals will work. And its so-called backstop, in case they don't work, is unacceptable to Britain because it creates a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the, the, the UK. This is all as intractable as it sounds. Is it, is it no, well, no hope of- yes, I mean, to the extent that there is something real going on at the moment other than just prevarication, and there is a lot of prevarication, but mm. th- th- but, but let's give them their due and, and, and assuming there is some tectonic movement of plates here. I think what's happening is that the middle ground is collapsing. The cake-and-eat-it fantasy that Theresa May would like, that we can have frictionless borders mm. without compromise that's what's disappearing and it's on attack from both sides it's on it's under attack um from brussels as we've been talking about for some time who don't believe that you can have your cake and eat it but it's also under attack from the brexiteers of which sajid david appears to be a a new member because they fear that that it's it's brexit in name only that, that that it's a code for a very very close alignment that they don't really want to have so what i think is going to happen is that the cabinet is leaning towards the technology option the highly streamlined customs um, mm. arrangement the maximum facilitation to use this latest buzzword which is basically a way of saying they will tolerate quite a lot of friction on the border with Northern Ireland and um, blame it on the Europeans and they will say look you know we've done our best we've got the number plate cameras we've done what we can it's still a border guys get used to it Um, that's code for and if everything else collapses you know we'll deal with it that's code for you know no deal's better than a bad deal that's code Mm. for uh, we want out and we want out properly and on the other hand, the, the sort of difference between the customs partnership, which was an attempt to try and fudge things, and a full-on customs union and single market membership that was the sort of fallback option that Theresa May was so scared about, they're colliding. And, and especially with an upcoming vote in the Commons on customs union, the Lords already mm. pushing on customs union, that is the the extreme, very soft Brexit end of the scale. So I think what we're seeing now is a starker choice between walk away cliff edge brexit and a very soft you won't even notice it's happening brexit right. in name only and what's collapsing in the middle is this idea that you can have a bit of both okay um, that's what i think is the big picture okay here. so it's the fudge that's melting yes might, yeah, yeah yeah okay i mean jennifer what i mean is what's what's the brussels take on this is it any view on what people actually expect to happen where they think it might end up well, I mean, the, the, the expectation of, of some very senior people is is still that they, they just don't know and they find it very hard to to assess exactly what is going to happen over the, the coming weeks and, and, you know, whether the UK will cede ground on, on this point by June. But I think maybe the dominant mood is perhaps a wait and see what happens in the Commons. I think EU officials are, are perhaps pinning their hopes on a, on a change of heart from the government, coming from pressure from Parliament to remain in the customs union. I think maybe there's a hope that that will solve part of the problem, because if the UK were to remain in the, in the customs union, it wouldn't completely solve the Irish border question, but it would certainly go a long way to getting there. I think that there is that hope that the, the choice might 
be avoided. But nonetheless, there are others who, who really see a, a potential crisis on the cards and that that crisis could come as soon as June because we're, we're running out of, of, of road to continue seeing a fudge on this. And that's what the agreement represented in December and then again in, in March, that the two sides could agree not to agree for, for now if this while this backstop was in place. But I think there are the limits on this backstop and how much longer you can uh, you can keep just having the vague agreement in place without the details. I mean, I think we're running against those limits now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, yes, the kicking of the kicking of the can <laughs> down the road has to come to an end at some stage. Okay. Um, now you mentioned the Commons there, um, Jennifer. So let's yeah let's 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 talk a little bit about that because there was uh, just the. the Yesterday evening, before we recorded this, the seventh defeat of the government um, in the House of Lords. Eight, oh, nine. Ninth. Now, nine. There, were, there, were, there, were right. there were three defeats last night. This was the seventh. And Sorry, there were yes. Okay. Two, more, two yeah. more followed it. So there have now been nine defeats of the withdrawal bill in the House of Lords. This was the seventh, and it might prove, or at least some people think it might prove the most significant. What's happened is that peers have basically ensured that Parliament's so-called meaningful vote on the withdrawal agreement really will be meaningful by ensuring that rather than Britain crashing out without a deal if MPs vote that withdrawal agreement down, Parliament can alter it to demand that the government goes back to Brussels and reopens the talks. So essentially what this amendment did was kind of reinforce the Dominic Grieve, the Tory rebels amendment uh, that came just before Christmas right at the end of last year, that guaranteed MPs a vote on the final deal. And that's kind of, this this amendment has basically sort of reinforced that amendment. Now, Dan, I mean, this whole thing will, of course, come back to the Commons in any case, but the government is by no means short of it, but, you know, have the votes there to to defeat it. But what's interesting about this latest Lord's vote, I thought at least, was that both sides have said it could be very significant. Um, I mean, let's start with the Leavers who got really extraordinarily upset about it. Why is that? What are they, what are they so angry about? Well, they see it as a wrecking amendment. Um, they see it as a deliberate attempt to overturn the will of the people. Um, and let's not forget, they're being um, uh, fueled here by the, um, uh, the our friends in the tabloid press. I mean, mm. uh, Daily Mail this morning, this was uh, it, it called the Lords the Wreckers, um, mm. which is very much in the tradition of the Daily Telegraph calling um, them the mutineers. And before that, we had the Mail calling them the Enemies of the people, mm. and then the saboteurs. I mean, mm. they, this is the um, the rhetoric. This, the, this fundamental sort of betrayal mm. that uh, everybody f- on the Brexit side fears is coming, and so the first sign of it in the Lords was pounced on this morning. And I, I think that it's all about sending a signal. They're desperate not to normalise the notion that Parliament has the final say, or that the people have the mm. final say on, mm. on this. Mm. I mean, slightly odd, of course, given that um, you know one of the points of Brexit was to uh, to, to reclaim parliamentary sovereignty. But moving on to the Remainers, um, I mean, you know, people like the Shadow Brexit Secretary, Keir Starmer, a lot of pro-Remain commentators saying that this could prove to be one of the most significant votes in the whole Brexit process because it effectively gives the Commons in Westminster the same sort of 
clout, same say over the deal as as the European Parliament has uh, in Brussels. I mean, it, do you see it as a significant vote? Well, I think they are also getting excited, slightly overexcited for similar reasons. They see a little chink. This is the ninth defeat in four days in the Lords. There's there's clearly a bit of a majority in the Commons over customs. They, they, you know, there's definite movement, and they want to accentuate everything they can see. And I don't I don't blame either side for flagging this up. Um, uh, it, it, it is an important moment. But my two reasons for just throwing a little of the cold water on are as follows. Firstly, this is the Lords. They will ping this back to the House of Commons, where the House of Commons will vote on the report stage. At best, the Lords might then vote for these amendments again in the final reading. But then when it comes, if the Commons send it back again, that's when the ping pong stops. Unless the Lords wants to basically self-implode. And there are a few peers who are willing to go down in flames over this. But unless the Lords wants to wants to sort of end its role as a, as a, as a second, <laughs> second chamber, chamber, they are not going to override the Commons three mm. times in a row. So ultimately, this comes down to whether, there's a, whether there are enough MPs who want this is to be the way mm. that it is. And that comes to my second reason for concern, which is calming everybody mm. down is that i think the import of the latest the douglas hogg amendment that mm. we're talking about is basically as you indicated in your opening remarks just to flush out into the open to make explicit what was implicit in the dominic grieve rebellion before christmas which i think was much more significant and to remind listeners basically what dominic grieve forced the government to do was to make the the treaty the the, the agreement that it reaches with Brussels to force that to be primary legislation that can be amended and the amendment is the process is the point at which the commons might say well this deal stinks we want you to go back and negotiate another one or Mm. we want to have a referendum or whatever it is and the fact that that can be um, amended because it's primary legislation was spelt out only last week by David Davis on the select committee hearing this is why Grieve went to the wire over this in in December Mm. the lords are trying to kind of spell that out again and and strengthen it a little Mm. bit but again it really comes back to whether the commons want to follow this through and that's where the backbench arithmetic on the tory side is all important and entertaining as it is to see these tory grandees douglas chris Patton was another yeah. one who backed the common the customs union amendment um a few days back entertaining as it is to see them have their last hurrah watch the backbenches in the commons that's where this is going to get decided okay jennifer last word with you what's i mean i imagine brussels is watching all this with some sort of bemusement um but i mean realistically if the government is sent back by the commons at the end of the day is that is that feasible is that possible could could brussels entertain a or the eu27 entertain the possibility of renegotiation well i think we we really would be in uncharted waters and at, at the risk of an outbreak of agreement. Um, I largely share Dan's view that we shouldn't overstate the significance of, um, of this uh, of this vote and the prospect of negotiators being sent back to Brussels to get a better deal. It, it sounds good in theory, but it's hard to see how it would work in practice if we imagine that this, this vote comes near the end of the process, a process where there's even today less than a year to go before the UK leaves the, the European Union. And that's the, the date that everyone has to keep in mind, that on the, the 29th of March 2019, all the, the, the sand will run out of through the hourglass and then that will be it, that the legal default is, is Brexit on that day. And you could very well see the EU saying, in response to a vote for more negotiations, well, saying, well, that's all very well, but as far as we're concerned, we've had the negotiations and we now want to uh, put this agreement to the test of the European Parliament. In, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure it would be as, as black and white as that. Um, I think there would 
we, as I said, we would be in uncharted waters. We'd have to see how EU leaders responded to it, and it's worth bearing in mind that there is that evolution clause in the um, EU mandate that allows the EU to change the mandate in response to the U a UK change in its red line. So potentially you could imagine there would be some crisis meeting where they would perhaps promise or, you know, the UK could work on an agreement where the UK might stay in the single market or the customs union, if that's what the, the British negotiators were asking for. So I'm, I'm just sort of speculating on what the outcomes might be. But but I, I think they, that it's not impossible to imagine that. But we also have to bear in mind that the EU options are very limited, that there isn't a huge range of uh, magical Brexit options to be negotiated and sending British negotiators back to Brussels is likely to come back with um, the very similar answers to what we've heard already, that either either you choose a very close relationship, a Norway-style relationship, or you, you choose something along the lines of a free trade agreement, which is what the, the government is currently going for, and, and you choose all the constraints that, that go with that. So I think it is easy to, to get carried away that with the idea that there's going to be a a fantastic outcome from sending negotiators back to Brussels, but I think when reality bites, it will not be uh, all it's um, all that we might think it it could be. If I can have a final word, mm. just to sort of cut through some of the waffle that I, I fear that is contaminating the debate in Westminster, I don't think we're really talking about sending it back. What they are talking about is 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 um, a second referendum and stopping Brexit, but. That is so unpalatable to so many people that, that, that it's cloaked. The Labour version in particular is cloaked in the language of, well, if we don't like the deal, we send it back. No one really thinks that's what's going to happen, or mm. if it did, that it would make any difference. What we're really talking about is if the Commons votes against the deal, they want the chance to basically say, let's, not, let's rethink Brexit entirely. Mm. And that's the big game uh, mm. uh, here, I believe. That's what's at stake. OK, well, we have run out of time, I'm afraid, but not for the first time on this podcast. We will have to conclude by saying we'll just have to wait and see uh, so that's it for this week uh, my thanks once again to Jennifer and Dan for joining me today please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers join the discussion on Twitter you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts if you want to get in touch it's Brexit Podcast that's all one word Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com till next week then I'm John Henley the producer was Simon Barnard this was Brexit Memes and thank you very much for listening For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.